1: Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow, or find an awesome template. No judgment. The Monday morning headlines say it all. Prince Andrew's attempt to explain his friendship with accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein backfiring.
2: You've been on his private plane. Yes. You've been to stay on his private island. Yes. You've stayed at his home in Palm Beach.
3: Yes.
1: The Duke of York generating a new wave of questions in what has become a sea of speculation surrounding his ties to Epstein. Prince Andrew denied he ever saw his former friend with underage girls in a pointed and detailed interview with the BBC.
3: Do I regret the fact that, that, that he has quite obviously conducted himself in a manner unbecoming? Yes.
2: Unbecoming. He was a sex offender.
3: Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm being polite Um, in the sense that he was a sex offender.
2: Queen Elizabeth's son, who
1: is eighth in line to the throne, was specifically asked about his 2010 visit to Epstein's Manhattan mansion after the financier pleaded guilty to soliciting minors for prostitution.
3: Now, I went there with the sole purpose of saying to him that because he had been convicted, it was inappropriate for us to be seen together.
1: Despite ending their friendship, Prince Andrew admitted he stayed with Epstein for four days.
2: We're staying at the house of a convicted sex offender.
3: It was a convenient place to stay.
2: Prince Andrew linked
1: to Epstein in a 2015 defamation lawsuit against Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein's one-time girlfriend. The lawsuit was filed by Virginia Roberts Jufri, who, according to court filings, alleges Epstein directed her to have sex with the royal on three separate occasions when she was a minor. Jufri speaking exclusively to Savannah. Prince Andrew, of course, denies
4: that this ever happened. He denies that it ever happened, and he's going to keep denying that it ever happened. But he knows the truth, and I know the truth.
1: Echoing his repeated denials of the allegations, Prince Andrew says he has no recollection of even meeting Jufri.
3: I I can absolutely categorically tell you it never happened.
1: Jufri claimed one of the alleged sexual encounters happened in March 2001 after dancing with the prince
4: at a London nightclub.
2: She was very specific about that night. Mm. She
4: described dancing with you and you profusely sweating (laughs) and that she went on to have... Bath, there's, a, there's, possibly. A, there's a
3: slight problem with, 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 with the sweating um, because uh, I, I have a peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat.
1: Prince Andrew, who served in the Royal Navy, says he developed the rare medical condition during his combat tour in the Falklands War. The Royal also casting doubt on the authenticity of this photo, appearing to show him with Jufre when she says she was just 17. That's me.
3: But but whether that's my hand or whether that's um, the position I I, but I don't I have simply no recollection of a photograph ever being taken. I'm not one to, um, as it were, hug and um, public displays of affection are not something that that I do.
1: The prince provided this explanation for where he was that night.
3: I was at home. Uh, I was with the children. I'd taken Beatrice to. Uh, a pizza express in Woking for a party at a, I suppose, sort of four or five in the afternoon. Um, And then because the Duchess was away, we have a simple rule in the the, the family that, 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 that when one's away, the other one's there.
2: Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. I know the royal family are rarely out of the media right now, and it will come as no surprise to you all that when people focus on Meghan and Harry's behavior and continue to scrutinize them and hate on them for choosing to live their lives on their terms and to tell their story in their own way, one person pops into my mind. Prince Andrew. I've been tracking Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell and Prince Andrew for some time and admittedly I'm perplexed as I haven't seen half the vitriol Meghan receives directed at him despite all that he's done and all the harm he's caused. And let's not forget he recently settled the civil lawsuit Virginia Dufresne brought against him by paying £12 million to suppress the truth and avoid responsibility and accountability and that was after the interview he chose to give to BBC Newsnight. Now, I want to share the the behind-the-scenes of that interview. In this fascinating episode, I interview Sam McAllister, who was the producer and booker extraordinaire who secured the interview, who Prince Andrew asked whether, if she were him, would she do it? Sam answered, and in my opinion, secured the interview due to her response an interview that changed the course of history forever. Now, I'm not going to tell you here how it went down. Take a listen to what Sam had to say. And you'll also hear about Sam's fascinating career for those budding criminal barristers or producers out there. So without further ado, here's part one. Hey, Sam, welcome to Crime Analyst. I'm really happy to have you here. This is in my intelligence cell. Please go ahead and introduce yourself to my lovely listeners.
4: Well, hello to your lovely listeners, and hello to you, lovely Laura. Uh, My name is Sam McAllister, and I'm ex-barrister, ex-journalist, and probably the thing I'm most known for, uh, which is the reason we're probably having this chat, is I just wrote a book called Scoops, which details the machinations of the negotiations with Prince Andrew, which was the negotiation that I led for the
2: BBC. Which is amazing. And so I will say to my listeners read the book or listen to the book. I listened to it actually on Audible and I was away for the weekend. It was my weekend gift to myself, birthday present, post baby, just to chill out and sit by a pool and you were in my ears and I was listening to everything that you said. And I mean, incredible because the Prince Andrew interview, first of all, we'll start there and we're going to end there. But it was an interview that I was asked in LA, would I listen to it I didn't watch it. I was asked by the BBC, would I listen to it and give my analysis of what I heard? So this was before it aired. I hadn't seen the whole thing. And it was within days that then it aired and we actually discussed it on Real Crime Profile. So for me, I always had a real interest in how this interview was put together and by whom, you know, behind the scenes, but we did deconstruct it on Real Crime Profile. And my God, I mean, it is an interview that actually changed history. And I say that with gravitas because it did change history. It created a set of circumstances Um, It was like a a snowball effect. And we're going to talk about that specifically. And I know you've been on Real Crime Profile. i regretted that I couldn't be on that interview. I too was in my traveling clothes off to New York as Prince Andrew talked about his traveling clothes and why it couldn't be him. And those who follow Real Crime Profile will know exactly what I'm talking about. But I was on my way to New York and I couldn't be part of that interview. And I really wanted to have a conversation with you. So I'm so happy to be here on Crime Analyst talking with you. and in fact, you've you've actually secured so many interesting interviews that we're going to talk about a number of them because I think it's very interesting, your career. And that's where I want to start, first of all, with you and your career. Tell me about Young Sam and how you got into... Well, first of all, you trained as a criminal barrister. so So let's start with Young Sam and how you got into law and why you left it. Absolutely. It's funny, actually, Laura, just as divert
4: slightly that you said that you heard the interview and you didn't see it because In fact, when I was in the room, I was 15 feet behind Prince Andrew. So in a sense, I kind of heard the interview, but didn't see his face. So I'm really interested to hear that about yourself. Well, Little Sam uh, was basically the product of two extraordinarily gifted parents who were both, uh, one born in extreme poverty, to be honest, in a council estate, and my father, who was um, the son of teachers, but they didn't have a lot of money, both of whom left school at 14 and 15 because they had to earn some money. That was the situation that they were in. And so I had parents who'd not done any university education, didn't have an understanding of education. And I was hugely lucky because little Sam was taught that everything she did was absolutely amazing. So I had that kind of luck to have the support and confidence of parents who thought going to university was a miracle, let alone becoming a barrister. So I ended up being a baby barrister in criminal defense because I was fascinated by crime. I was interested in the law because I didn't know much about it, but from television programs like Ally McBeal, but it looked glamorous and interesting and lucrative. Let's be frank, because my background, I needed a little bit of dosh. And the last reason was really, I didn't know what to do with my life. And I knew that I was good at arguing. And this job, you seem to get paid to argue. So it seemed a fantastic fit. And I ended up doing it basically because a couple of people told me that uh, people like me don't become barristers. And of course, that lit a fire under me. I love a no, which boded well for my later career. So I went off to the criminal bar. I did it for a couple of years. But to be frank, I hated it with a visceral passion. Loved the clients. That's so high stress, so high stakes. I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. I couldn't live with myself when things went wrong. So short-lived
2: career and then ended up in journalism. Amazing. And just listening to you, Sam, we share three things in common. The first, that we both like to argue, and a constructive argument, which is intellectually challenging, for me is fascinating. The second is the negotiation part, the no to the yes and the commitment, and when someone says no to you then or that you can't do something you can turn it into this very positive energy that makes you committed to want to do that thing and I think lots of people would say that about me particularly when I was younger but the third thing will probably surprise people it's not something I'm particularly proud of and I've never shared it before but as a teenager growing up reading Jilly Cooper and Jackie Collins and when you said that and the Audible book I just started laughing because I hadn't thought about that for a very long time that you know I was would voraciously read Jackie Collins and Jilly Cooper, as we all did at school, and pass them around each other. It was just so funny seeing that name checked and the shows that you talk about in terms of law, because I too was thinking about studying law. It just made me chuckle. It really did. (laughs) Well,
4: one of the great things that I'm lucky about, Laura, from the background I'm from, is that I don't have any intellectual snobbery about me. I mean, obviously, having great academics is an incredible achievement. And being super clever Is a wonderful thing. But there are so many people who are hugely clever and talented who never get those opportunities. So I pinch myself with luck, but I've never bought into the idea that you have to know about Sophocles and Catullus and Wittgenstein and not watch reality television. I love Real Housewives. I love Jillie Cooper. I love Cosmo and Vogue. So I feel quite lucky that I never had to pick a side. I've been able to walk in both areas. And I think that's been hugely beneficial to my career, actually.
2: Yes. And I think it's quite interesting what what you say as well. I have a, a best friend who's incredibly smart as a female and we went to school together and she would try and hide how smart she was because she didn't like to stand out. You know, she didn't feel confident enough. And I think a lot of young girls and young women feel like that. So I think we also have to celebrate when being incredibly smart and intelligent, you got into debating and felt that your light started to shine in debating and you got into your element you said when you studied criminal law that you literally just drunk it all up, which is incredible, and you were clearly good at what you did. But why did you leave law? I mean, what was it that you went into it and you talk, you know, in the book or you, what you wrote was that you really felt that you were in your element and then you got very turned off of it. What was the thing that turned you off and away from criminal law?
4: I think it has to be a vocation if you want to do it. The reason I would say was because although I loved the clients, I loved being in a cell, frankly, with somebody accused of heinous crimes, allegedly, of course, we say in brackets. I loved the human element, but it was very arduous in the chambers, as we call them, where you were housed as baby barristers. We're called pupils. That's where the training takes place. And I had a lot more common with the clerks, who are the people who run your legal diary, lots of them from... Working class backgrounds, gift of the gab, very charismatic, not uptight. I didn't have as much in common with the people I was training with. It was very cutthroat. I was not the usual sort. I was lip gloss and boobs, to be frank, and trouser suits when everybody else was wearing skirts and big hair and nail varnish and loud. So I think there were just too many parts going on that were negative. To the hugely positive part of the clients. And I started to get anxiety and stress. I didn't sleep. And you know, there's a point at which you just have to have a look at 40 years of your life. And I thought, no, I just can't do this. So so I took the, the way out that was available to me, which was I just left.
2: And you just decided it was not for you. Did that shock people?
4: I think it shocked other people because there's a lot of kind of feeling about the calibre and status of certain jobs. Now, in my household, the calibre and status that mattered was, are you a decent person? Have you got nice manners? Are you decent to other people? Are you nice? That was really what mattered in my household. So in my household, all my parents cared about was, you were unhappy, let's find something that makes you happy. But in the wider world, the response to giving up something high calibre like being a barrister can be actually quite strong. Uh, People would look at me and speak to me and how could you how could you give that up? I'm like, well, I was miserable. Yes, but still the status. And so there's a lot that comes with walking away from something high status. But my personal misery was really not worth a couple of, you know, snarky comments here and there by people who hadn't done the job or were doing the job, but loved it. And I'm pleased that they loved it, but it wasn't for me.
2: Well, you were brave and courageous to take that decision. To say you must be brave and courageous to stand in a cell with someone who's accused of murder... And even in that situation, you have to negotiate, right? You have to build rapport, particularly as a woman. Can you talk me through that? You've kind of painted yourself the, the the picture, and I'm looking at you now, blonde hair, you know, you talked about lip gloss, et cetera, but even the way that you present it, I mean, standing in a cell, what would go through your head in terms of those moments and, and what you had to do?
4: I have to say it's really interesting because I agree with you that for a lot of people and certainly most of the other people that I was in training with, they found that extremely difficult, intimidating, overwhelming. They were scared, which I understand. From my perspective, and it goes back, I suppose, to negotiation, but also if I have a superpower, Laura, it's connection. And I never felt frightened. There were objectively frightening situations that happened in sales or aggressive comments from clients. Obviously, mental health issues, extreme, extreme stress for them, drug issues, those kinds of things. But I felt truly comfortable in a room with someone where I've got basically 10 seconds to make that connection, to show them that I'm there for them. Ultimately, they're my boss, which a lot of barristers didn't really look at clients that way. They looked at them as demeaned, diminished beneath them, not at all for me. So most of the time, my greatest excitement actually was those first few minutes where it's make or break because your client can attack you theoretically, but he or she can also sack you. So the connection is personal, but it's also professional. And it was the part I I love the most counterintuitively.
0: Allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island, where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits.
2: Yes, I was taught at New Scotland Yard, you don't get a second chance to make a good first impression. And it sounds like you understood that within minutes. And it is. It's literally within 90 seconds, people will make a judgment about you one way or the other. And that decision, that judgment will rarely change, actually. And we all do it. So you realize that very early on going into the cell, that you have to be quick to create rapport of some description, whether it's tactical empathy, whatever that might look like, a form of connection and that they understood the, the hierarchy. And it sounds like you got that and you put them above your station in a sense, which probably made them trust you more compared to maybe other people that they had had met. But you have to be quick to think on your feet in, in those moments. So that tells me a lot about you and about your negotiation skills, for sure. And there's a moment you describe in your book, which is really was really interesting for me, which I think it was when you were doing your pupillage, you were asked about whether Myra Hindley should ever be released. And you answered the question honestly and earnestly. Can you just describe those moments and, and what you said and what happened there after
4: well I think Laura probably the biggest issue in terms of my career progression is that I always say the truth and I it's a real impediment to be honest um, so obviously you know you should read the room if if you were a wise young Sam and you should work out that the chambers that you're going to they're probably going to think that Myra hindley should be thrown away the key and possibly executed it was a conservative chambers but I gave an honest answer and my answer was that if she had done her time, such as it was prescribed by the law. And if the professionals who were working with her felt that she was in a position, uh, according to their standards, set down by the country and by all these mechanisms that are supposed to keep us safe, if they decided it was right, theoretically, for her to be allowed out, then, then that was that. It's not my business to interfere with those mechanisms. That didn't go down very well. Uh, It was clear that um, whoever I was speaking to felt very personally involved in that case. Perhaps there was a connection. And she was very clear with me. She did something very clever and also devastating in terms of being a young person trying to get a job. She listed the names of all of their victims. And that's a very powerful lesson. It's a powerful lesson in terms of, to be honest, kind of emotional blackmail because it was an intellectual question I was a young woman. It wasn't personal, but it was a very powerful lesson in reading the room and how to get the upper hand in a conversation, which she clearly had. I did not get the job, of course. And obviously she was immediately put off me as a candidate as a result of that answer, but it's what I truly believed. So if I went back in a time machine, I'd give the same answer.
2: And I think what you also said in, in the book was that the lesson stayed with you for life, which was that there are victims at the end of, you know, a serial killer or a situation. And that empathy, you know, for me, because I've spent all of my career talking from a victim's perspective, trying to educate people at New Scotland Yard. It's not just a victim. It's just not a number. This is somebody who's been murdered. These are the family members that are grieving, trying to understand what's gone on and trying to humanise people. And so it was interesting to me, more from the POV, that for you, it stayed with you as a life lesson. It was such a, a strong reaction from her. But to name the victims, as I always say, with every serial killer case, we know who he is, but we don't know who the victims are. And that's slowly starting to shift. But I wonder how much that played in with you of every interaction you had thereafter, particularly when you're trying to get interviews that you are forced into a situation, or you said that you learned to stand in their shoes and see things from a a different perspective. And I, I wonder how well that has served you, actually, that lesson, as painful as it was at the time, and you didn't get the job. Was that something that you felt did change things significantly for you in how you view, particularly when we're talking about crime and the victims at the end of the crime that's occurred, particularly when we're thinking about murder or anything where something horrific has happened that has had a lasting impact?
4: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think it was obviously in my sort of barrister career, an important moment, because obviously I should have thought about the answer or known that there were consequences. And she gave a very strong response to my intellectual response. But I think that empathy comes from a lot, lot younger. My mum and dad, you know, were all about human interaction, about treating people with dignity and respect. They didn't teach me about class, actually. I know it sounds a bit wacky because we were working class, councillor's stay, all born in the same house. My cousin couldn't read or write properly, you know, fish and meat market stock. So you would think it would be a huge thing in my childhood, but it, it really wasn't. They just taught me to mix with princes and paupers and to treat everyone the same no one was better than you, my mum would say, no one is worse than you. And all that matters is, are they, forgive my language, an a-hole or not? So I think probably the way that I dealt with people, whatever their situation, whether they were accused of a heinous crime and deserved the benefit of my counsel, because good justice is important, whether you are the victim or whether or not you are the alleged perpetrator, or whether it was somebody who'd been through something hideous or their family was in pain, I've just always had that human connection. It's instinctive in me if there's someone on the street and they're crying to go and offer help, or if there's somebody in a parlor situation to spend an extra minute with them, even if it's something that other people might find awkward. So I completely agree with you, people who go through terrible tragedies and moments, it's hugely important to ensure that you treat them with respect, and dignity and kindness and fairness. Whether you're coming at it from a journalistic perspective or whether you're on the other side, you can do a lot for somebody in that situation with your respect, even if you're defending somebody who is accused of a crime against them. And that human element, I never see somebody as a case file. I never see somebody as a nothing. I never see someone as a number. I always see them as that human. And so that has gone all the way through my career.
2: Absolutely. And it sounds like you took her literally when she said princes and paupers. I mean, that's what you did, right? <laughs> you, I did. It's amazing. I, did. I don't think she meant it literally, but you know,
4: <laughs> that's what it ended up being. But what a wonderful background, right? I realize this is quite unique now that my mom would teach me to walk into a room with confidence. I'm not saying it always worked because along the way from being a bit of a sort of, you know, outsider, sort of feisty, gobby, slightly out of control with my witticisms, aggressive people might call me, alpha, confident, whatever you want to say, there were bumps. Of course there were. But my mum said to me, you know, whatever happens in your life, looks come and go, money comes and goes, know who you are, like who you are, do your thing and do not let anybody take you down. And that, I mean, that has served me phenomenally well through errors in, you know, meetings where I make a bit of a fool of myself, through conversations where it doesn't go your way, through, you know, several careers, that confidence and understanding that I have to live with myself, whatever it is I do, I think was just such a wonderful, simple, important life lesson for me.
2: Truly and I mean you were the first person to go to university in your family as well which and first woman which is is amazing. You mentioned the word aggressive. I would say assertive. And why I say that is because too often women who are assertive, who have ambition, are labelled with negative words. Whereas we would say that the man is ambitious and passionate and goes after what he wants. So for me, the language, because I heard it all the time at New Scotland Yard, of how women are painted when they are passionate, ambitious, and when they are determined and tenacious. And they're the sort of words that I would imagine should be the words to describe you. Tenacious, definitely, in in getting these interviews, which you have to be, right? You do. I have
4: to say I feel a comfort with the word. I'll tell you why. Because I think a lot of the things that other people find complex in workplaces comes to do with being passive-aggressive. I think so much time is wasted in the things that aren't said, in feelings that are held, that aren't articulated, in grudges, in talking behind someone's back, in dealing with them disrespectfully to somebody else saying something cruel. Now, I'm the opposite. I'm direct. We might call it aggressive. We might call it direct. I'm happy to be called either because I'm certainly not passive aggressive. And I think that that directness is something I'm actually proud of. Although for some people, of course, it might be somewhat unsettling. It doesn't come from a place of cruelty. It comes from a place of wanting to resolve issues, which ultimately any workplace or any job is about. So I absolutely take your point, but I'm
2: probably quite proud of being aggressive. Well, definitely Alpha. Can we agree on Alpha? Alpha. Well, I mean, being direct, because I share this trait, you see, myself, and that's why I've wrestled with it a lot across my career. I, I will always be direct in my communication and open and honest, but that terrifies a lot of people. You know, when you are able to communicate clearly and being eloquent in that, and you're being clear, crystal clear communication, because otherwise, how do you move through things if you're not? I share with that. Rather than be the passive aggressive and let grudges and, you know, all play out and talk about people behind their back and so on, why not just have the grown up conversation, which is difficult and uncomfortable, but that's how you genuinely resolve conflict, right? That's how we see each other's point of view. And that's how we negotiate. That's not aggressive. I mean, that's just being crystal clear with communication. And and some people can't handle that. And particularly if you're a woman, Sam. And I I do think that sex does play a role there. And I did listen closely to what you were saying in the book of boss after boss. And you have to prove yourself yourself. 170% normally to your male colleagues like 60% effort that's what I found at New Scotland Yard time and time again I was proving myself at 170% so you know I shared that with you too but tell us about how you became well how you became you became a top booker at newsnight but how did that happen and why did you decide the news was for you and the BBC
4: well it was completely random because I left the job at the bar and I was self-employed as a barrister. So I'm literally employed in the morning, unemployed in the afternoon. And then I had to sit on my bum, on my sofa, in my flat with, you know, no income and go, well, toot. That's the word I use, Laura, when I want to swear to, you know, 40 years, what am I going to do? So I looked around at some friends who had interesting jobs and asked to meet them for coffees, you know, to find out about different careers. One was an academic, one was working in a charity because I Always been interested, obviously, in charitable work and doing something you know to help society. And then the last one worked at the BBC, um, Radio Four. So on a program that actually was law based, called Law in Action, and I went in for a couple of days. They very kindly let me pop in to see what it was like to get a you know a toe in the water. But it ended up being my foot in the door because as a lawyer, you know what it's like when you have a title of some kind of job area, everyone assumes you know everything in that oomph. So I knew nothing about housing law or medical ethics law or you know professional negligence, but I was able to sift through the kinds of things they were doing. So they would do five legal stories a week. And I did understand it in more of a way than they would have as lay people looking at those kinds of journalistic things. So they gave me six weeks and then there we were. Now, I really enjoyed it. I was reporting on Radio 4. I then worked on an economics program, in fact, about data called More or Less, because I'm a bit of a math geek as well. And that was fantastic. And then here's a familiar tale. I had a kid and I left the workplace for a while. And when I came back, I wanted to be part-time. I've been part-time ever since. So everything you read in the book was done as a part-time single
2: parent, of which I'm extremely proud. And you should be. And you should be. Kudos to you. That is no mean feat. And I never got the sense that that's what was happening, (laughs) given that women juggle so many things all of the time, compartmentalize. And yet there you are raising a tiny human and doing this simultaneously.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when I went back after birthing the tiny human and wanting to go back into my old job, it was made clear that it wasn't seen appropriate for a part time worker to do that job. I strongly disagreed. I absolutely think I could have done it. But there we are. And I was put into this kind of cul-de-sac thing called development, which which means nothing and everything. And it was miserable. So I was looking for an escape route again. And I loved the program Newsnight because Jeremy Paxman, as the presenter, in my view, was the best broadcaster like ever. Absolutely adored him. And you could go for one day. So off I trotted to news, which I'd never worked in before, television, which I'd never worked in before, and a daily program, which again, I'd never worked in before. And I just walked in that door, Laura, and there was something about that atmosphere, intellectually, the energy, the fear combined with the excitement, the non-stop action that just, oh, I just felt straight away, this is something special, and this is something I could really enjoy. So, I begged for an opportunity to stay for six weeks, the editor allowed it, and I started getting obsessed with the interviews. So the high stakes, high kudos part of working there was being a little mini Martin Scorsese or Jane Campion, you know, creating some very arty, beautiful film that would be played and then often instantly forgotten. But what wasn't instantly forgotten would be some incredible interview with a minister where it got fractious or something where somebody revealed something for the first time or maybe lost their job because the interview was so important and revealed something profound. And I was completely addicted to getting that kind of content, accountability content, as I would call it. And so my career as a booker wasn't called that. You were just called a desk producer. That's what we were known as. But in my head, I knew I had something that other people didn't want to do and that I was probably quite good at, which was booking interview content. And I just thrived doing that. I loved it.
2: Incredible. Now explain, because a lot of my listeners are in America, Australia, all over the world. Explain what Newsnight is or was as a program in the UK. I mean, I grew up watching it and know the detail. Of course, I didn't know that you were part of that, but just explain what it is and what it means to non-UK people?
4: Absolutely. So I understand that Newsnight is basically like a kind of intellectual equivalent of something like 60 Minutes, right? So it's a television programme on BBC Two, uh, which is like one of our main channels here in the UK. It is news, current affairs, economics, politics. It's perceived as highbrow. You know, it's kind of like that kind of level. And it's on five nights a week at around 10pm. So it's the last kind of BBC big news show bringing 45 minutes or so of content that's been created largely 10 hours earlier. So you start on the day, you deliver it in the evening, but it'd be the kind of place you would expect if a politician was in trouble to see him or her justifying their position. The kind of place if a prime minister was in town you know, from another country that you might tune in and hopefully see an interview with him or her. And the kind of place that you would see those long form conversations that don't exist much really in the current climate where somebody speaks for 10 minutes or they argue on a highfalutin panel where everybody's, you know, using kind of sophisticated language and the benefit of a ton of education. And now and again, sporadically, a random cultural person, some titan like James fonda or robert de niro so probably a place that you would go if you like to add value to your knowledge of the news of the day a sophisticated kind of like interesting challenging hard work and also accountability trying to deliver to the bbc national audience really really special place
2: Yeah. And before we get to the Prince Andrew interview, give my listeners a flavour of some of the people that you had on and also who you booked, some of the guests.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I've been really lucky because you get to meet some incredible people. That's why I like doing this job the most. I'd say you're an experienced billionaire. So, you know, you would have obviously the British prime ministers on, people like David Cameron. Don't think Boris Johnson ever came on, actually. But over the years, Theresa May, all of the British prime ministers would be on, the chancellors of the Exchequer running the economy, they'd all be on. And then if you had visiting states people, people who run the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, Christine Lagarde, people like that. If you had a visiting member of parliament of another country or a prime minister. So, I mean, I personally booked, for example, interviews with uh, Justin Trudeau or Benjamin Netanyahu when he was prime minister of Israel. And then you would have Prime Minister Valls, who was the Prime Minister of France for a while. So just kind of world leader vibe. We didn't do so well on American world leaders, I'm afraid, because high stakes, low yield coming on Newsnight. But then you might pop in and see Brian Cranston or Amy Schumer, uh, booked Amy Schumer. And in the Trump years, we did very poorly on getting people in the administration. But I had a real trio of joy that I had. Uh, the first UK interview with James Comey after he'd been fired unceremoniously Mm -hmm. from the FBI as director, Stormy Daniels, of course, who was uh, in that relationship with President Trump, Mm -hmm. and absolutely uh, Sean Spicer, who was for a while the head of everything at the White House in those first heady, crazy days of the Trump administration. So the full gamut of people that I will be trying to convince to risk their chances on quite an aggressive, to use the word frankly, an aggressive kind of like news program. Um, A real mix of extraordinary, interesting, fascinating people.
2: Yes. And you had crime survivors on as well. So, as well as prime ministers and uh, members of parliament, etc. cetera, and the, uh, there's one interview in particular that I'm thinking about. Perhaps you might share a little bit of the, the back story with my listeners. Amanda Berry and Gina Dejesus, can you say a little bit? I mean, Ariel Castro, that horrific case that a lot of people in America do know about. He was a bus driver who kept a number of women in captivity, literally in a basement and a number of the women had children by him. How how did that interview happen? And how did it, well, there's a story behind it. So perhaps you can say a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it genuinely is
4: just one of those heartbreaking stories. Just every element of horror that you can think of is in that case, right? Mm -hmm. And I think because obviously, Ariel Castro was you know, just sort of like random, nondescript guy, you know, right on his bus and running his life. He had a daughter who was at the same school as a couple of the young women who were taken. You know, he was just sort of a nondescript guy. But in his home, a nondescript suburban home, in the basement, the most unspeakable horrors were occurring. And he had eventually three young women all taken at different ages, at different times. And he took decades between them of their lives away from them. And you're absolutely correct. He did have a child with one of them, uh, Amanda, and he had pregnancies with another of the girls that, that didn't make it to term for reasons that we won't want to go into. And the life that they were living in that basement was one of pure horror and pure terror. Now, I'd known about the case because I have an interest in criminal law around the world. And so when I heard The young women involved, uh, Gina and Amanda, those two were writing a book together. I was fascinated to hear their account. Not in my perspective, I know often people like to read these things, they have a different motivation. But as someone who used to be a criminal professional, in a sense, you come at it from a different perspective. And I was fascinated to read what had happened to him, the way they'd been treated. The machinations to get them out of that situation. It was obviously, in every sense, a fascinating book. So, when I heard about it, I immediately went to my deputy editor at the time, a great guy called Rob Burley, who got it. And getting it, hugely important. He could have said, Never heard of it, not in our country. Why would anyone care? And I said, Extraordinary personal story, hugely important. We can give them the time on television that they need. And nobody will not be interested in watching these young, extraordinary, courageous women. So we were in a bun fight to get the content, as you often were. And eventually I was given the first international interview. It was meant to be after Diane Sawyer, in fact. She got the first interview full stop. We'd often follow a hugely important American uh, journalist or program. But as it happened, that particular week she was due to do it, Caitlyn Jenner came out on her program, and so they bumped it. They, they ran it a, a different time. They didn't do it. So we had a 30-minute interview with the girls. We did a 45-minute documentary as well because it was so hugely affecting. And I like to think, and you can tell me, Laura, if, you, if you've seen it, that we gave them an autonomy in that broadcast in terms of not cutting it down to salacious 30-second clips. They got a real opportunity to, to tell their story with autonomy and dignity. And it was a profoundly affecting interview. And I'm so privileged that we got to do it.
2: Incredible. I mean, the fact that you gave them that platform, Really important in in their own words, and as you say, not cutting them down to like the thirty second soundbite or the one minute soundbite, but giving them the ability to share their story. And the fact that you ended up being the the first broadcast. Or you, you didn't imagine that that would happen, but it's one of your most watched interviews, isn't it? which just shows how much interest people have in hearing the stories through the survivor's own narrative, through their own voice. And I believe it's still one of the most successful and widely watched interviews, isn't it?:
4: A hundred percent, it absolutely is and And I was lucky that I had that deputy editor who trusted me because a lot of other people would have said, oh well it's it's not very news night, you know, it's not global." Politics or macroeconomics. But what it was, was a global story because whoever you are, you have either as yourself as a woman or somebody who's friends with related to women. We all share, I know you'll feel it too, that moment of thinking when you hear about crimes like this, that could have been me. And it's not about turning it into being about you. I'm not looking to be kind of narcissistic. Uh, but this is the burden that we we bear you know every shop trip every walk home every interaction where you know somebody is a little bit difficult with you you know every walk every moment it's something that we bear it's like a shadow behind us so there's something so visceral particularly as i now have a child myself of a similar age a boy but to the age of the girls who were taken so visceral about that universal tale of yes initially being completely treated in the most degrading and horrific way, but surviving, thriving. He's gone. Let's not mention his name. And those three women and the daughter, Jocelyn, that was had by one of them, they live, they thrive, they continue. They are heroic beyond belief. And that human level, again, is something that obviously speaks to lots of millions of people who ended up watching that interview with us.
2: Yes, you said so many interesting things there. I mean, they managed to free themselves, or one of them did, thank goodness, because of the child being able to roam the house a bit more freely and being able to raise the alarm and two men helped them escape. So it's a lesson in survival and the brutality and the torture and the rape and all the things that they experienced and even pregnancy and giving birth in that sort of environment and and what stuck with me was the describing of you know obviously the the child not going to school and you know mum having to create this sort of pseudo environment as if she's going to school through imagination of you know walking to the bus stop and just acting all of these things out it just it really made my mind spin to what that must have been like in captivity for for all of them and to survive that just incredible. And you made the comment in the book about women having the expectation you'll be harmed at some stage. And that's true. And we have to remember the Errol Castro, well, he was a bus driver. So he had a legitimate contact with children. And one of the children, they were in the same class as one of the the girls that he took. I mean, 14 and 16, we're talking young girls that were taken off the street not kidnapped viciously, but this confidence trick that can be used and he took them to his house and they were never seen again. And the level of sadism really did jump out at me, the fact that one of their mothers was looking for them and he even went up to the mother and took a flyer from her and then handed it to her daughter. I mean, the the level of sadistic behaviour from him... Makes me understand whatever they experienced, we're probably only hearing a tiny fraction of what really went on across those years because it was a significant period of time he held them for. And just the irony, he got a long sentence, but he ended up taking his own life when he was held captive. And yet he kept these girls, children, he held them captive for, for many, many years. Just the irony of that that i mean thank goodness he did take his own life in in some sense but he just caused so much harm so i'm i'm glad that you gave him a platform and those sorts of interviews are important for people to hear about and to be carefully managed. Can you say a little bit about how you manage the process behind the scenes? Because that's important too. You know, you book someone, then your editor or someone decides, well, we're not going to go ahead with that interview. And you're the one that's had the relationship. You create the relationship, the rapport, and they've trusted you, haven't they? How tough is that? And and what did you do in terms of those relationships in, in that interview? I
4: have to say, I found that the toughest part. And I think some of my colleagues would say I was too far on the other side in the sense that I always saw my connection with the person, the publicist even, or whoever it was I was dealing with as absolutely crucial. And in a situation like that, where obviously they are doing themselves an emotional injury, speaking to us, so the level of trust is huge. The level of mutual respect needs to be huge. Very lucky on the program, Newsnight, that I, I worked on. We have a presenter called Kirsty Walk, and she is just brilliant at this. She treated them with such you know, dignity and no salacious questions. Uh, she's really experienced. She's been doing the job for several decades, and she is just the perfect person for an interview like this. And One of the joys of Newsnight was that we had several presenters at that time So had it been a politician who just resigned, who needed to be torn to pieces, then, you know, you would choose Paxman or Emily Maitlis, our other extraordinary presenter. But when it was something of this kind of human level, Kirsty has a magic to her in terms of showing people kindness and respect and still asking questions that sometimes are a bit rigorous. So the conversations with the people that were dealing with them on the publicity side were very human when would they like to meet her? Would they like to talk to her on the phone beforehand? Would they like to do a conversation with the producer as well who was going? Should we meet them the day before for coffee or one of their homes? Where, where would they feel comfortable? Where could we film it that they would feel was safe, neutral ground? Do they want to meet Kirsty for a walk beforehand or breakfast? You know, Those questions that if it was a politician, you wouldn't ask. You just sit them in the seat and you go for it. Those layers of human questions, I hope, at least mitigated a teeny tiny bit. The experience for them and asking those questions is absolutely crucial and something that I don't know if other people do, but certainly was something that I would always do.
2: Yes, yeah, so important. And just as you're speaking, it reminds me of well, what happened with Jimmy Savile. And of course, Newsnight was highly impacted You mentioned in the book about two of your colleagues, Liz McKean, who is no longer with us, and also Marion Jones. They were committed to telling the story. They interviewed lots of the, the victims and then the story didn't run. Can you just say a little bit about, that was in 2013, things came crashing down for Newsnight. Can you just say a little bit about that time? You were there at the time, weren't you, at Newsnight and witnessed some of these conversations going on?
4: Well, it was a surreal time because often you work in little teams. And if you aren't on that little team, you don't know that much about the story, if indeed anything about the story, because it's obviously often top secret and crucial that it's kept kind of under wraps. So I didn't work on this story in any way, not for one nanosecond, not for a minute. But of course, you know, something's going on. um, And you know that there are doors being slammed and raised voices. It's a bit like when, you know, there's some kind of problem in a relationship, you know, there's something going on, but you don't know the details. And so for many of us on the team, as the story emerged um, in terms of what had happened with Myron and Liz bringing the story, and then obviously their perspective being that it was closed down by the editor, his perspective being that he wanted to make A thousand percent sure. And I never say a thousand percent because it's a hundred, of course, but bearing in mind the reputation of this individual and his association to the BBC, an extra burden on him as the editor. And of course, these two conflicts between the brave, courageous journalist bringing a hugely important and despicable tale to the public and the fears and concerns and checks and balances of an editor thinking about the ramifications of if that is not True. And of course, it was true. But the had it not been true element obviously would have been the thing that would have kept him up at night. Now, I wasn't in any of those conversations. And of course, it ended up that he was the most heinous, ghastly, terrible sexual predator. And thank God for Liz and Myron and their courage in trying to bring that story to the public. But of course, we ended up not being the people that brought it to air. And we ended up, quite rightly, being the people who were criticized for not doing so when it turned out that it was true. So it was a very heady time for the program because of course we we assumed we were going to get axed. That felt like uh, the program was going to be got rid of and we were all going to lose our jobs. And you know, it was a it was a very difficult time for for them and a very residually although unimportant of course in the scheme of what acts he had committed but obviously on a human level you're concerned you're going to lose your job. So it was a profoundly difficult time for journalism, for the BBC and for all those individuals. And of course, the victims who've been brave enough to bring their stories to them.
2: Yes, the victims who were brave enough and all kudos to Liz and to Marim for building that trust and confidence. And, and that's what you know made me think about it because I have interviewed Marion actually, on Crime Analyst. And so for my listeners, please listen to that incredible interview, episode 75 and 76. It was a two-parter. Um, I mean, unbeknownst to me, I mean, I knew all about the case, but not that Marion and Liz were behind it um, in terms of lifting the lid on what went on. And, of course, they had to hand it over to another journalist because the BBC didn't want to run it. But, my goodness, Jimmy Savile, incredibly prolific and hid behind his charity work, all the things that he did to create this veneer, this false impression about who he was. And so many people did know what was happening. It really is quite terrifying when you realise the scale of it and just... He was friends with royalty, all the people that he put around him to enable his behaviour. And there was Liz, who, you know, I do believe from everything I've read and from Marion's own testimony, she was incredible in terms of speaking with the victims. I know you knew her. I didn't, unfortunately. But I do hold her in such high regard from everything that I've heard um, of her as a person and as a journalist trying to do the right thing. And... It sounds to me that like there were some very good people at Newsnight actually trying to do the right thing. The producers behind the scenes who we don't always hear about. And you're used to being behind the scenes, but now you're on camera, right? And telling some of these stories, which are, are, are very powerful stories about how interviews come to pass. And you mentioned that sometimes on a small team, no one really knows what you're working on. Absolutely. I mean,
4: um, I should say, as per your previous one, that the heavy toll on the Savile case was taken by Marion and Liz. And often it's the producer that gets it in the neck when things go wrong. And sadly, that's the theme that goes through my book.
2: Tell us a little bit about Prince Andrew and how that came about. And it was a female team, wasn't it? I mean, led by you. But tell my listeners what happened behind the scenes and going to Buckingham Palace and how those negotiations took place and went down. When it came to
4: Prince Andrew, it was a very unusual situation because we'd never had a member of the royal family on Newsnight For those of you who haven't seen it, who are are listening, it's quite a formidable group of journalists and it's known for being sort of quite tricky to take part. So you're putting yourself at immense risk and members of the royal family, understandably, usually want to do a chummy chat with somebody who's very kind of, you know, thrilled to be talking to them, quite deferential. So we had no history with them and it didn't seem a good fit, to be honest. As it happens, In the job, I would get hundreds of emails a day, and some would be suggestions of content, some would be press releases. And on this particular day, which was about, I think, 13 months before the interview happened in 2019, so in October 2018, I received a random email from somebody I'd worked with previously in a PR agency who I'd been nice to, thank goodness. So they came to me with an opportunity, and the opportunity was to speak to Prince Andrew to speak about his charitable concern, Pitch at Palace, which was for entrepreneurs, bringing them forward and giving them support throughout the globe. Well, we don't do things like that. They're called a puff piece in the trade. It's kind of a free advert for someone to say how amazing they are with no test against them, no kind of like interesting questions allowed. So I declined. And I left the email, I spoke to them on the phone, and then I emailed them afterwards and saying, "You know, thank you so much, but we don't do these kinds of things. We'd want to talk about news issues. So if by any chance he changes his mind and he wants to do a more wide-ranging interview that's suitable for a news and current affairs programme, let me know. You never hear back usually, ever again. But lo and behold, in May of next year, I got another message and at this stage, I hadn't even really told my boss about it because you over-promise and your career looks very, very bad. So I always under-promise and try to over-deliver. And they offered me a meeting at Buckingham Palace. Well, no one's going to turn that down. So they introduced me to... Uh, Amanda Thirsk was her name. She was the chief of staff for Prince Andrew. I'd not interacted with her before or heard of her before. And I was invited to come to Buckingham Palace a few days later to meet her, to talk about the possibility of an interview. Now, at that stage, things were not looking that bad for Prince Andrew. Of course, he'd had this residual association with Epstein, but he hadn't been arrested at that stage, Epstein. He was still alive. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell was at large, and the work that was being done by Virginia Roberts and others hadn't really reached the critical moment where it was every front page in the world. So off I trot. I didn't even tell my editor at the time because I was 99.9% sure it was going to come to nothing. But I fancied a look inside Buckingham Palace. I'd never been before. I'm not too proud to say it was going to be interesting, right? So I went to Buckingham Palace that day. I met Amanda. I spent about two or three hours with her. I had, of course, researched her before I went in. And by the time I was just about to leave, it was looking very good. I'd negotiated onto the table Brexit, which a long time ago now, but was very important at the time. The future of the monarchy, talking about Meghan and Harry, talking about politics. These were not things that members of the royal family did. So it felt like I had a prize already. But then she said there was a red line. And that red line was that he would not take any questions about Jeffrey Epstein, because in her view, it was a dead subject that nobody cared about to be honest, we probably only would have asked one question because at that stage, it wasn't really uh, the hugest deal, but we would have, of course, have asked about it. And so when I went back to the office, the spring in my step was dampened by the knowledge that my editor, Esme Wren, who was the editor at the time, would say, it's a no. And it was a no. So she didn't change her mind on the red line. We had to decline because we can't have our hands tied. But what we had there, Laura, that I think is so interesting when it comes to negotiation and to this story, Was trust because I'd gone in, I'd spent all those hours talking with her, we'd connected and bonded, we had many similarities. I'd researched her, she was very, very plain speaking, easy to deal with, a real class act. But I'd also created trust because I didn't say anything that wasn't true. I said we would likely decline. We did decline, we turned down an opportunity because of the integrity of the journalism. And so that trust in terms of meeting me and having a connection with me and the program existed, but also the trust that we were true to our word, which I think was a helpful double whammy. So in the interim period, things start to change. A lot happens. You remember Epstein's arrested. Then he's indicted. Then he's dead. Then you've got the FBI getting involved. Prince Andrew's name comes back into the ether. Virginia Roberts is doing important work in terms of bringing that to the fore. And you've also got Ghislaine Maxwell still at large at this stage, but it's beginning to be a very big story. And so every time that story moves, I get back in touch with Amanda. Surely now he wants to do an interview. This is the tipping point. His position is impossible. It's invidious. He has to speak. And every time it's a polite no until October. So from May to October, nothing happens but polite no's. And then in October, she invites me back to the palace. And I can barely believe it. So off to the palace we go. That time I take my presenter, Emily Maitlis. Never usually take anyone with me, but I did. And we spend another couple of hours with Amanda. We get to the end of the negotiation. And I asked a question I never ask, which is, is he going to do an interview? Because you're just negotiating with imaginary people. So you just have to not ask those kinds of questions that are blunt usually. And she said, yes, he is. And just one. And Emily and I did an intake of breath. You know, she's a extremely famous and you know brilliant presenter that we both knew this wasn't just them sort of having a fishing expedition or a beauty parade, as we call it in the trade, bringing people in, just kind of asking questions and then deciding to do nothing. I trusted Amanda. And I knew when she said that there was definitely an interview in the offing. And so we then Went back to the office and waited to hear if we would get to come in and meet with Prince Andrew. And then, days later,
2: you days receive later, an email.
4: That's right. 12 long days later, we receive an email inviting myself, Emily, and Stuart McLean, who was the deputy editor at the time, who was by now the executive editor of the project. So the thing about being a negotiator is you kind of give birth to the baby, but then somebody else brings them up. So he's brilliant. He's now the editor of Newsnight and the three of us go along. Two, we believe, meet Prince Andrew face to face. And that's quite astonishing already, because when you're negotiating, usually you just negotiate with the second or even the 10th in command. It's very rare that you meet the interviewee themselves, for obvious reasons, and extremely unusual, because obviously it's a Buckingham Palace. And so the three of us arrive, expecting to speak to him and to Amanda Thirsk, his chief of staff, we go upstairs. We're obviously nervous. Even the most professional person would be nervous in that situation. I've rehearsed. I've gamed it. I've researched it. I've thought about every possible permutation. And then Prince Andrew arrives, but he's brought a curveball—a very big curveball in negotiation terms. Around the corner he bounds. I use the term advisedly. He's full of energy. Oh, lovely to meet you, Sam Emily Stewart. And um, I hope you don't mind. Well, one cannot really mind when it's a member of the royal family. Uh, but I brought someone with me and I thought, oh, God, it's a lawyer. Because any lawyer would have closed this down. It was disastrous as a legal interview, even if he'd said nothing like that bad. I knew it was a legal disaster. Uh, I have brought my, my daughter, Princess Beatrice. So now we have to negotiate in the Queen's house with her favourite son about sexual depravity and terrible heinous crimes and allegations against him personally in front of his young daughter. And that really was quite an extraordinary moment in terms of recalibrating in a second your tactics, as you would understand better than anybody, you've created a certain dynamic and now that's completely gone. So we all ended up in that room together, the six of us, a very small room. I'm maybe three feet from him, maybe two. And Emily in between, Amanda and Princess Beatrice on the opposite side and Stuart at the other end of the table and the negotiation begins.
2: Why do you believe Princess Beatrice was there? I
4: mean, I can only take it at face value. And he said that he was meeting her afterwards and she'd asked what he was doing beforehand. And I can only imagine the alarm in her voice when he said, oh, don't worry, darling. Or, you know, I'm meeting uh, Emily Maitlis and the Newsnight team. I'm thinking of doing an interview with them. She's clearly a sensible young woman, and I can imagine that had her alarm bells ringing. So my impression was, obviously taking his explanation at face value, that she'd asked to come along too, having suddenly and last-minutely heard that he was having this conversation with us. And so she came along, leaving aside the rights and wrongs of him, obviously she came along as a caring, loving daughter who wanted to protect her father's interests and... Having her in that room, I'm sure, was, you know, helpful to him and to her and to anybody who asked him questions afterwards who would have the extra element of being able to ask her what she thought. But obviously it was a massive curveball for for me um, in terms of what I would planned to do in that negotiation in comparison to how I now had to behave with her there in front of me.
2: Right. I mean, total curveball. And it's not as if when he says, oh, I hope you don't mind, it's not as if anyone's going to say, well, actually, we do with the princess, please. I mean, that was never going to happen. But you have to recalibrate very quickly and reset and re-strategize. So you do. You say something quite, what I would say, quite risque at the end of the interview, which is either going to clinch it or push it a million miles to a no. Tell my listeners a little bit about that and and why you took that decision, because those who are not from the UK, you won't know uh, some of the history about Prince Andrew and what he was known as in in the media.
4: The arc of a negotiation is quite interesting because obviously you start off trying to create trust and rapport, and then you continue through the negotiation. And at some stage, you feel that you've created a modicum because it's a false situation of trust and rapport. And then you feel you can take a little bit more risk, that you can be a little bit more frank. There's more kind of understanding. And then there might be a point, as there was in that negotiation, where I felt that there was a connection between him and myself. I'm largely oblivious to the people around me because, you know, you're in your zone. And there was a point in which he said to me, he was very interested and taken with my, my legal background. And I'm happy in the book to talk about what I said, but I try to avoid saying what he said. But this one thing I will mention was he he said to me well sam given our conversations about the law if you were me would you put me in the box if i was your client should i do it now what a question it's a really interesting question and that's when i knew i could take some risks it's interesting because it's not a sensible question to ask somebody that you're on the other side of a negotiation with it's not a sensible question to ask somebody who obviously has a legal background and you don't and their motivation is different to yours and it tells us but at that stage at least superficially he trusted me so once i know i have that moment of trust that he's asking me a question that he should not have asked and i gave him an honest answer which was i can't tell you you know the questions will be fair how good are you going to be basically is 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 a matter for you how clever you are or how good your answers are how credible they are it's not a matter for me but yeah i would i would give you a shot cuz the inference of guilt is greater than taking the risk so if it were me it's not me. So you need to come to your own conclusion. But once that's established, we know we're close. We've got rapport. We've been there quite a while. It's all or nothing. And I would rather walk away having taken a risk and failed than be dissatisfied with my behavior. So a little bit further along, after this trust has been uh, established, I say to him, sir, with with respect, which anyone who works in the law immediately knows means with no respect whatsoever. And uh, I went with respect. I've lived here for 40 something years, giving away my age now. And I only know two things about you, sir. And at that stage, my presenter, Emily Maitlis and the deputy editor, I can't see, thank God, no doubt are thinking, oh, Lord, what is she going to say? I said, there are two things that the public know about you. And that is And these were the descriptions that were used of him in the British press because he was known as quite a a traveller and quite a Lothario. And I said, we know Air Mars Andy and Randy Andy. That's all I know about you. And I can tell you with certainty that the latter description does not speak well to your current predicament or the way that people will see you in terms of your innocence or guilt. It must have been a nanosecond, but it felt like a very long time. I'm holding my breath. I'm probably going to get sacked if this doesn't go well. And then he laughs. And why that was so important was because whatever else he was doing, whatever else he spoke to, and of course Emily and Stuart were both brilliant and they were so good in the negotiation as well. But I know a bit like when you watch the interview and you only remember Pizza Express and you only remember No Sweat, I knew he would remember that. And if he was doing 10 negotiations, I didn't know if it was one five, 10 or 100, that would be a memorable moment to him that would connect him to us. And so that's why I took the risk for better
2: or worse. Could have been worse, but it happened to be better. Amazing. And he laughs. And in that moment, you knew that it was a yes.
4: I thought it was a, it had gone from a no to a possible to a maybe to a, if someone's going to get it, I think it could be us. I felt we were in the last two at that stage. I didn't know how many people there were, but I felt that gave us an edge.
2: I mean, what's also interesting to me is that inadvertently you did play to his ego, which we know the male ego does like to be stroked. And his does, for sure, from just watching him on interview of saying, well, it depends how good you are in terms of whether you should make the decision yourself about talking to us. And I would imagine that no one has ever said no to him or any criticism whatsoever in in terms of everything. He has always controlled every situation, time, space, how things happen. You know, we, we forget that as normal people. But in these sorts of interviews, you don't have that control they are the things that you don't have. So he would most likely be mapping it across all his other interactions that it's something that he could handle. And of course afterwards, you know, it was something that I said to Jim and Lisa, it's very clear he did think that it went incredibly well, that his answers were good answers. But I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. So just say a little bit more about how that interview with him then wrapped, as in when you're asking the, you know, the questions and trying to get him to agree to it. Did you then go away and then you find out days later that you got it? And and what happened from there on out? I know it was a a, a very top secret project.
4: Well, actually, it's interesting you said the word um, inadvertent and actually quite the opposite, advertent. Because what my research had taught me about Prince Andrew and my ability to put myself in other people's shoes, no judgment comes from this, but there's a royal delusion that comes from being 59 years, told that you're amazing, believing that you are incredible Uh, through no fault of his own and through some fault of his own also. But that language was completely advertent because I didn't want to mislead him because it wasn't a matter of saying to him, yes, you must do this interview. I would do this interview because obviously that would be insincere because, of course, I would say that, wouldn't I? But it was sincere to say, only you know whether you're going to give any actual good answers to our questions. That was a sincere belief. And, of course, it turned out that, unfortunately for him, he was very, very bad with the answers that he gave. But this was a very short period of time, actually, Laura. It's quite extraordinary. There's an artist here in the UK called Craig David, and he has a famous song where he just maps out a week. Well, we did, not to be glib, but factually, the negotiation on Monday, they said yes on Tuesday. They wanted to do the interview on Wednesday. We ended up doing it on Thursday. The first tweet announcing that we had the interview came on the Friday. And you guys saw that interview on the Saturday. So a period of just six days. So as we left on the Monday, we had no clue when we would hear, although they said soon, but we don't really know. It's how long is a piece of string. But as it happened, the very next morning, we received an email from Amanda saying, could one of you call me, please? And of course, Stuart's now the executive, so it's no longer my baby. So he he makes the call. Emily and I wait with bated breath in WhatsApp. I think I recall we weren't together in person and we just wait for the end of that call. And then he lets us know. It's a yes. So less than 24 hours after we'd met him, we received a green light. And that was just an astonishing moment. And then, of course, the real hard work for Stuart, for Emily And for Esme, the editor, who was the one sane adult left because she hadn't come to any of the negotiations. She hadn't been involved in any of it. She was back in the office. She kept herself hands clean and also sane. And we hadn't really been sleeping or eating. We were all quite, uh, you know, sort of really at the end of our tethers just in terms of the intensity of the experience. So she then starts the process with Stuart and Emily and Jake Morris, who was one of the brilliant producers on Newsnight, who was putting together some of the questions and the content while we were you know, at the negotiation back in the office. So then it all starts, the frenzy, just two days for a programme to come up with one hour's worth of questions on not only the most important interview that we had ever done, but since Princess Diana, in my view, the most important interview that anybody has done in broadcasting in the United Kingdom. And the burden of that on on Emily, of course, and residually on those of us on the team who were working on it was, was something else. But 48 hours later, she was back in Buckingham Palace after we'd received the S. There on the Monday, face to face with the cameras on on the Thursday. Quite extraordinary.
2: Really extraordinary. As you were talking through the days, I did have Craig David seven days. It was the six days that you secured it. But to turn that around in such a short period of time. And and yes, I mean, it is an incredibly significant piece of history, actually. 45 minutes that, you know, I can't emphasize it enough, changed everything. And Emily's, I will call it a forensic deconstruction, you know, of challenging him in the right places, which needed to be done. Okay, I'm jumping in here to wrap part one. If you want to know why I thought Emily's interview was a forensic deconstruction of Prince Andrew's account and what the standout moments were for both Sam and I and what Prince Andrew said and did and what he should have said and done, in our humble opinions, you'll have to listen to part two. You'll also hear why the interview not only changed the course of history for Prince Andrew and the royal family but also for Sam. After the interview, Sam hid in her house and felt abject fear, and she explains why. You really won't want to miss this. Join me back in the Intelligent Cell for part two. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheesley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Killrood.